0: Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Hey, looks like we hit on another one of my all-time favorite battles. Today, we head back to the Napoleonic Wars for the final defeat of Napoleon at the epic Battle of Waterloo. Many people have heard of this battle and know that it was Napoleon's last, but few people, at least here in the United States, actually know what led up to it and how it played out. Let's remedy that right now. Here, kind listeners, is my humble attempt at describing this monumental battle. Think back to your school days. Hopefully, you'll recall that on April 6, 1814, forces of the Sixth Coalition forced Napoleon's abdication. By May of that year, he found himself living in exile on the island of Elba. Of course, being the man he was, he wouldn't stay there for long. Napoleon escaped Alba and landed in France on March 1st, 1815, with about a thousand men. Thus began what is commonly called the Hundred Days. King Louis XVIII, of the restored Bourbon dynasty, promptly fled the country, and Napoleon reached Paris on March 20th. The great powers, who had defeated Napoleon the first time, got together again and signed a treaty of alliance on March 25th. This group, made up of Great Britain, Austria, Prussia, and Russia, was known as the Seventh Coalition, or simply the Allies. They pledged to keep an army of 150,000 men each in the field until Napoleon was again defeated. Shortly after this, the Allies made the decision that each would mass their armies along the French border for a massive invasion. Each ally would converge on Paris. Napoleon would be defeated again and, yea, victory. This was a great plan by the Allies, but the problem was that it would take some time for all the troops to assemble. The Austrians and Russians each had a relatively long journey to the French border, so this massive invasion probably wouldn't be able to take place until early July. This fact gave Napoleon time to organize his defense and make his plans. At this time, Napoleon had about 160,000 first-line troops at his disposal, but he did have to use many of them for border defense. During the rule of Louis XVIII, conscription had been done away with. Thus, Napoleon couldn't draw from the large number of trained men who had returned to civilian life. To remedy this, he renewed conscription and quickly had all undischarged soldiers called to arms. By the beginning of June this would add an additional 80,000 troops. It was also at this time that the new group of conscripts were to report to their mustering points for training. By the way, these new conscripts wouldn't be ready for Napoleon to actually make use of them. Napoleon's plan, given the tenuous situation in which he found himself, was to strike northward into the southern Netherlands, what is now Belgium. There, He would divide and conquer the British forces under the Duke of Wellington and the Prussian forces under Field Marshal Gephard von Blücher, hopefully before the Austrians and Russians could get to the party. This would mean he'd be able to negotiate with the Allies from a position of strength, or at worst, be left with only half the Allies still to fight. Now speaking of the Allies, those in Belgium didn't look too promising. Von Blücher had four corps of Prussians, giving him a total of 120,000 men, but most were inexperienced conscripts who had seen no action. Meanwhile, Wellington had 93,000 men at his disposal, though he himself characterized them as infamous. He actually commanded a polyglot force. 31,000 British troops were under his command, but most had no experience in battle. Added to that were 29,000 from the Netherlands under William, Prince of Orange. Wellington wasn't too sure how reliable they'd be because they had been under Napoleon's control the previous year. Also in the mix were 16,000 troops from Hanover, 6,800 from Brunswick, and 6,300 men from George III's German Legion. This last group, the German Legion, had extensive experience fighting the Peninsular War so they were the group Wellington felt he could rely on the most. Now Wellington and von Blücher had agreed to come to each other's aid should either be attacked, but a lack of any real preparation prior to June 15th shows that very little serious attention had been given to such a possibility. Napoleon and his army moved into the southern Netherlands on June 15th, and by the end of the day, He had his army compactly deployed along a 12-mile wide front. This deployment separated the Prussian and British forces and gave the French the option of operating against either. Okay, so on the morning of June 16th, Napoleon's initial plan was to shift most of his forces to his left wing, which was to the west, to take on Wellington and the British along the Charleroi, Katrebra Brussels Road. However, he soon discovered that the Prussians who were at Ligny were quite vulnerable. So what he did was to send a holding force under one of his most trusted commanders, Marshal Michael Ney, to contest the crossroads at Katrebra. He himself would take his main force and go after von Blücher at Ligny. Thus, we have two different battles fought on that day. At Katrebra, Ney was cautious in his advance, which gave Wellington time to reinforce his outnumbered troops. This allowed him to still hold Cattrebra after a day of inconclusive fighting, which saw the British and their allies suffer 4,700 casualties to France's 4,300. Meanwhile, Napoleon attacked the Prussians at Ligny. To make a long story short, Napoleon whooped von Blücher and his boys, and only darkness and a stubborn Prussian resistance from their wings prevented the defeat from turning into a rout. Prussian casualties were 12,000, compared to France's 10,000. But during the night, a further 8,000 Prussians, who had been recruited from former provinces of the French Empire, deserted von Blücher and took off to the east. On June 17th, the Prussian forces continued to retreat in good order toward Waver. This left the French free to turn against Wellington, but Napoleon was uncharacteristically slow to seize this opportunity. At about midday, Napoleon dispatched Marshal Emmanuel de Grosche with 33,000 men, almost a third of his entire strength, to pursue von Blücher and the Prussians. All this pursuit would do would be to keep these French soldiers away from the next day's action. On the French left, Ney was doing nothing to hinder Wellington's orderly withdrawal from Cotrebra. And when Ney finally did decide to make a move, a torrential thunderstorm hit. This, in combination with a skillful rearguard action by Wellington's men, allowed him to reposition his forces for what would come next. Throughout that day. Wellington and von Blücher had been in constant communication as each made their moves. Von Blücher promised Wellington that he would be able to reinforce him the following day, so Wellington ended the 17th, capped out in a strong defensive position along a ridge south of the village of Waterloo. Clearly, Wellington planned to give battle to Napoleon the next day, so let's see this ground that he's chosen for the rumble. The setting, as I said, was a little way south of Waterloo, and the British and their allies would be facing south. A long ridge ran east to west. Along its crest was a deep sunken lane, which was the Ohane Road. This ridge was bisected by the main road to Brussels, running south to north. The crossroads were roughly the center of Wellington's position and had a large elm tree. Wellington positioned his forces on the reverse side of the ridge with the exception of his skirmishers and artillery. The length of his entire front was only about two and a half miles which was relatively short and this allowed Wellington to draw up his forces in depth which he did in his center and right. He planned on the arrival of the Prussians to reinforce his left during the next day. In front of this ridge, Wellington had three fortified positions. Anchoring his right flank was the Hogamont Farm. It had a large, stoutly built house and was hidden in a grove of trees. The house faced north and was approached by a sunken lane, which would allow a flow of supplies and munitions to be brought to its defenders. Anchoring the left flank was the hamlet of Papelot which had many lanes and hedgerows, and was also strongly fortified and garrisoned. It also commanded the road the Prussians would be using to get to the battle. Out in front of the center of the British line stood the large farmhouse of Le Hassant, which was heavily garrisoned. It was just west of the Brussels Road. Just across the road from it was an unused sand quarry, where Wellington had placed sharpshooters. All in all, Wellington had chosen his ground wisely, and his 68,000 men and 156 cannons were positioned in such a way as to present a rather formidable challenge to any attacking force. And speaking of an attacking force, let's talk about the French. Napoleon arrayed his 73,000 men and 252 cannons along the slopes of a parallel ridge about 1,200 yards to the south centered on an inn, La Belle Alliance. He would initially command the battle from Rossom Farm, which was in the center behind his forces, but as things got cranked up in the early afternoon, he would move forward to a position near the inn. The incredibly sodden ground from the previous day's thunderstorm forced Napoleon to delay his attack, so it wasn't until about 11.30 that the battle began. Napoleon opened the battle with a diversionary attack against the British right flank at Hogemont Farm. His hope was to draw British troops out of the center to reinforce the farm and then hit their center with an attack in earnest. Thus, the first shots of the Battle of Waterloo came from French artillery aimed at the farm, followed by a French infantry advance. This attack against the farm could probably be described as mismanaged, on the part of the French. As the fighting progressed, more and more French troops were poured into the assault without drawing off any British defenders from their center. For the first hour and a half of the battle, fighting was confined to Hogemont. When 1 p.m. rolled around, Napoleon was about to order his grand battery of 80 guns positioned near La Belle Alliance to start pounding the British center, but he paused. When a mass of troops emerging from woods about eh, four or five miles to the northeast were spotted. These troops were the 30,000 man Fourth Corps of the Prussian Army, under command of Friedrich von Bulow. And following behind them was the rest of the Prussian Army. Napoleon quickly sent a message to Marshal de Grocher, ordering him to rejoin the main French forces. If you'll remember, he and his thirty three thousand men had been dispatched the previous day to pursue von Blucher and the Prussians. Napoleon's message didn't reach him until five o'clock, and when it did, he happened to be engaged fighting the Prussian Third Corps, which had hung back from the main force, so there was no way de Grocher was going to make it to Waterloo, regardless. Napoleon still counted on defeating Wellington before the Prussians could arrive in force. He sent two cavalry divisions, followed by an infantry corps, to form a screen in von Bülow's path. With this accomplished, he ordered his grand battery to open fire. For the next half hour, they pounded the British center. At about one thirty, he sent in 18,000 infantry under Ney and Dierlon no French cavalry accompanied them, so the British infantry was able to hit them with maximum firepower. On top of this, they marched in an unusual formation. They were in three divisional columns, 200 men wide and between 24 and 27 ranks deep. Such a formation reduced the effectiveness of their return fire and made them far more vulnerable to artillery. That being said, the French infantry hit the British lines hard. La hey Sainte was under attack. Papelot was occupied, and French troops had reached the sunken road at the crest of the ridge. Severe firefights were taking place, and the Allied troops were being pushed back. At this point, about two in the afternoon, one could say that Napoleon was winning the battle. But at this crucial juncture... Wellington's cavalry commander, the Earl of Uxbridge, threw in two brigades of heavy cavalry. This forced the French back. They were able to withdraw from Peppelot in good order, but elsewhere they were thrown into confusion and sent back in a rout, suffering 3,000 casualties and having 2,000 more taken prisoner. Flushed with their great success, cavalry units under Lord Edward Somerset, and Sir William Ponsonby ignored Uxbridge's call to return and continued on. They charged the French lines and even drove off some of the gun crews in the Grand Battery before Napoleon countered with his cavalry. This action, while perhaps heroic, was largely pointless and cost the British 2,500 casualties, including the death of Ponsonby. At three o'clock, it seemed as though the intensity of the battle began to slacken, with the exception of Hogemont, where 1,200 Allied troops still held off many times that number of French troops. At this point, Napoleon ordered Ney to quickly seize La Hessante in preparation for another infantry assault from Dierlon, including elements of the Imperial Guard. Ney sent in two infantry brigades, but they were repulsed. While this was happening, Ney saw movement in the British center. He mistook the movement of wounded soldiers to the rear for the beginnings of a retreat. Consequently, at just after 4 p.m., Ney ordered the French cavalry to charge in what he thought would be the deciding action of the battle. The British responded to the French cavalry charge by forming squares. These were hollow box formations, four ranks deep, and were much more compact than one might believe. A square formed from a 500 man battalion might be only 20 yards long on each side. These squares were incredibly effective in breaking a cavalry charge, especially one such as this, which lacked infantry and close artillery support. The fixed bayonets bristling outward could not be charged by horses, nor could the square be outflanked because it could lay down fire in any direction. Some British infantry accounts claim that the French cavalry charged twelve times, though it is much more likely that some of these were successive waves of the same general attack. Regardless, the French cavalry would be repulsed by the squares and sent back down the ridge with the harrying fire of British artillery and counterattacks by Allied cavalry. While accurate casualty counts can't be made, one may say that generally the French lost half their horsemen during these charges. At 4.30, while all this was going on in the center, the leading divisions of von Bulow's corps opened fire from the Paris Wood, an area a bit east of the battlefield. They attacked the French screen Napoleon had placed there earlier in the day. The French troops fought hard to hold their ground, even when they became increasingly outnumbered. Von Blucher, who had traveled with von Bulow's corps, decided to switch the Prussian attack to the village of Plancenoit on the extreme right of the French flank. Sheer Prussian numbers forced the French out. But Napoleon dispatched a division of the Young Guard to recover it. The Young Guard's success relieved the pressure on the French right flank, at least for the time being. At 6 p.m., after the final French cavalry charge, Ney brought forward six thousand infantry, but they were met with heavy artillery and rifle fire. They were soon driven back, suffering twenty five percent casualties. In response to fresh orders, Ney was finally able to capture La Hessant. Cannons were moved forward and positioned there and pounded the British center from a range of only 300 yards. Again, the French infantry was thrown forward, this time advancing to the ridge where desperate hand-to-hand fighting ensued. This, then, is when the battle truly hung in the balance. The French could still grab victory, if they could overwhelm Wellington's forces before the arrival of any further Prussian units. Wellington's forces were almost exhausted, and high casualties and a wave of desertions from some of the Allied troops had left his center dangerously open. On the British Allied left flank, the French had captured Popolat for a second time, while the right flank saw bitter fighting still going on around Hougoumont, The grim reality of the situation for Wellington was that at this point, he had no reinforcements to deploy until the Prussian 1st Corps arrived, and they were still three miles away. Ney noticed the wavering on Wellington's vastly depleted center and requested infantry reinforcements to press the issue. Napoleon refused, for the time being, to release any of his 14 guard battalions that he was holding in reserve. He was too occupied with the Prussians on his right flank. The young guards division that was holding Plancenois had been driven off, so Napoleon sent in two battalions of the old guard. This force drove off the Prussians and chased them about a quarter mile eastward. The young guards were able to reoccupy Plansinois. Shortly after 7 PM, with his right flank re secured, Napoleon turned his attention to the center. Even though he had released six battalions of the old guard to join Ney, as soon as Plansinois had been retaken, it had still given Wellington time to reorganize his defenses. Furthermore, the Prussian First Corps had arrived on his left which freed up infantry and cavalry there to be moved to the center. With the addition of these troops, Wellington cleared the French troops from the ridge before guard units could reinforce them. He also retook La Hassante and silenced the French battery there. Ney, leading five old guard battalions, chose not to take the shortest route up the Brussels road, which would have afforded him the best cover as well but instead advanced across the unprotected slope of the ridge. Even such excellent and well-trained troops as these couldn't hope to prevail for very long against the number of guns and men that lay in their path. They were turned and driven off at about 8 o'clock. Their flight served as a de facto signal to the French troops in their rear and to their right that the battle was lost a wholesale and disorganized withdrawal began. The Prussians, who had been concentrating their increasing numbers near Papalat, were able to roll up the French right flank and turn their retreat into a rout in that area. At 815, Wellington ordered a general advance of the British and Allied forces. Tremendous confusion was created in the area around La Belle Alliance because the bulk of the French army was being driven there by the converging British and Prussian advances. At 9.15 p.m., Wellington and von Blucher met in front of La Belle Alliance and greeted each other as victors. It was decided that elements of the Prussian army would pursue the defeated French. One Prussian unit chased the French for about five miles to the southeast, while another drove the panic-stricken French 11 miles to the south. So thus, The Battle of Waterloo became Napoleon Bonaparte's final defeat, though Allied victory had come at a high cost. The British and their allies under Wellington suffered 15,000 casualties, while the Prussians had 8,000. Napoleon and the French suffered 25,000 casualties and had 9,000 men taken prisoner. That was almost half the total men the French had had in the field that day. Now, before I go on, one classic anecdote from the battle. It involves Wellington's cavalry commander, the Earl of Uxbridge. It seems that toward the very end of the battle, he sat astride his horse, near Wellington, as the two men surveyed the closing moments. A cannonball came whizzing by and smashed his right leg. The story goes that Uxbridge exclaimed, "'By God, sir, I've lost my leg!' To which Wellington supposedly replied, "'By God, sir, so you have!' (laughs) Who knows if the words exchanged are true or not, but surgeons did have to amputate Uxbridge's right leg above the knee. The leg was buried in the garden of the house that the surgery was performed in, and a stone marker was eventually placed above it. Apparently it became quite a tourist attraction. Anyway... What about the defeated Napoleon? Well, he fled the field and made his way back to Paris, arriving on the morning of June 21st. He abdicated the next day. On July 7th, the Allied forces marched into Paris and King Louis XVIII was restored to his throne the following day. Napoleon had fled to the west coast in hopes of being able to escape by ship to the United States this plan was frustrated by the presence of a British naval squadron to whom he surrendered on July 15th. Napoleon would again be exiled, this time to the island of St. Helena, where he would spend the remainder of his life. But talking about that, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again, hopefully next week.